Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning that it's not suitable for children and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. We begin with an unfolding tragedy in Tamworth where a grandmother and a five-year-old child have been killed in a house fire. Reporter Tom Saker is at the scene. Tom, a horrifying morning there. Do police believe this blaze was deliberately lit? 
Well, Mike, uh, police are certainly treating it that way at the moment, as if it was deliberately lit. And we may well see by the end of the day someone charged with at least two murders. Neighbours here on Byalong Road here in Tamworth alerted firefighters around 5.30 this morning. They found four people inside the home. Two of them tragically didn't make it out alive. One of them, we believe, just to be five years old. The other is an adult. Now, two people were taken to Tamworth Hospital. One, a woman in her 20s, is in a critical condition. She suffered severe burns this morning. Another is a seven-year-old child who suffered from smoke inhalation. And there is one man at the moment at Tamworth Police Station assisting police with inquiries. Uh, fire investigators and detectives are still here on the scene investigating how the fire started and, and possibly a motive as well, Mike. I know we include a trigger warning before every episode of Australian True Crime, but I want you to be aware that this episode is particularly difficult listening. Natalie Sands and her mother and her children suffered an unthinkably brutal attack at the hands of her father. It was unthinkable even for Natalie, who, having grown up with this man, thought she knew how brutal he could be. She thought she knew his limits and how to stay just outside of them. But one night in 2019, he shocked her. Now, you and I have heard some terrible stories together, but this one is very, very hard. So please check in with yourself as you go along, and if you need to, turn it off. Natalie does want the world to know what happened to her and her boys and her mum. She wants us to know especially what happened after the attack. But I know she's not going to want to hurt more people in the process, and there's no shame in finding the cruelty of this story too much to bear. So please take this as another warning about the content in today's episode of Australian True Crime. My family life was just as that, as kept as my family life. I had my, my outdoor life with my friends and stuff. That was my good part of my life. Outside of family, I had, re I had I did have a nice childhood and I had great mates and I grew up in a, a, a beautiful little town but behind closed doors it was a lot more obviously serious than displayed to other people. Right. So was there violence going on at home? Yeah, yeah. Domestic violence towards my mum all the time. And I've only got so many events I can account for whereas people beyond me being born have so many more worse than mine. So when I was about 16, I moved to Mackay with my sister. It's um, a long way. Yeah, yeah. Well, she was up there um, with one of my sisters and I moved up there and I worked and as, you know, you do the normal thing, you grow up and then I came back and they lived in Gunnedah at that time. They'd moved over to Gunnedah and... I, I don't know, I just went back. I just didn't have a reason. I just went home kind of thing. Hmm. Well, you're still very young. I mean, you know. I literally was 17, like, yeah. It was like a kind of be a, a tiptoe, everyone tiptoed on eggshells situation to keep the peace. Around your dad. Yeah. There was a lot of times where he was just fine and, and out fixing stuff and but and it was it wasn't fighting and stuff, but when there were times that it was fighting and it was bad, it was bad until he decided that he didn't want it 
you know, until he was over it, basically, kind of thing. Yeah, and that's the terror of it, is, and that's the eggshells part of it, is you never know. That's right. You just never know when he's going to turn, what's going to turn him. So you kind of learn, you learn along the way what triggers him and what he doesn't like, and you you avoid doing that to not rock the boat. Yeah. It's, it's That's like normal. That was like, but, but I recognised very early on that it wasn't also, that it just wasn't spoken outside the family regardless even in, even though I recognized that it wasn't okay within the family so at 17 I went to Tamworth I wanted to be a heavy D's mechanic I'm I'm the tomboy type to be honest I wouldn't even know how to probably put my HR on <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm, that's not my forte then I like, I was never, it was like, you're not allowed to have a boyfriend until a certain age, you know, until you're 18. And I was 17. Like, I already had been moved and I'd already been out in the world, basically. And then I had met the father of my kids and we were just really good good mates. And he we ended up going to the Gold Coast and we were living together for a bit. And I fell pregnant with my first at 18. And then had him at 19. Wow. And how was that? Did you feel ready? Are you one of those people who was mature and, or were you both? Were you both those people who were ready? I, I did all alone. I'm basically, because we were more housemates than anything, we kind of just agreed. And then I wanted, wanted another one. We we're kind of going through some situations and I didn't want to just have one child by themselves, you know, they need to have a sibling. So then, yeah, we just had another and, um, but we weren't, like, we weren't together, you know. My father had basically manipulated. He just wouldn't let my mum come be with me because he he knew very early on that I was much like her and I was, like, the rebellious one that seen through his bullshit, basically. So I did childbirth alone. I did everything alone. He, my sisters and siblings didn't even come see me at all. My whole life living on the Gold Coast. I've kind of adapted to, to being alone. Yeah. So I had a Lando. He was like my little twin flame. He was nonverbal. He had stage autism. Really? When did you realise that? Very early on. He just wasn't meeting the, the milestones of like uh, mainly talking. Yeah, right. And, he, and he'd always talk through touch. And emotion and body language. That's how he, that's how I kind of figured something was that was different. But Orlando definitely made me the mum I am because of how he was. And he he was gentle, gentle. He never cried. Like he was never naughty. He was just a cheeky, happy little boy that could have had a whole beautiful life. What year was he born? He, he was born in two thousand thirteen. On the 31st of October. So he's a Halloween baby. Oh, yeah, he is. <laughs> I was on the Gold Coast. The baby daddy wasn't helping me out. I needed a team. So I kind of just packed up. I asked mum and dad to come and get me. They came and got me in their truck. I went to Tamworth. I got a house. And Orlando was five, so because he was autistic, he needed special services. Tamworth, they had amazing services, but I, I wanted more for him. I wanted him to have better services and better opportunities. 
and I wanted to move them to the beach where they were happy and we could just, you know, we could go for a walk because they love the water. Yeah. And did he and his sibling get along nicely? They were best buddies. You know, they, they did everything together. They'd go out and do everything together. And because my eldest, like I explained to him very well that, uh, that Landy's different. Um, that's what we called him, Landy. And I educated him on how Landy was different with his autism and, and my eldest was great. And today when I see him play with other kids, I can see that caring love that he gives to his brother when he looks after little other little children like along the way. So I was in the middle of renting this house, trying to afford to pay for accommodation and fuel and everything to go apply for rentals over in Port Macquarie. My nan actually, I grew up in Port Macquarie. It's like a hometown to me as yeah. well um, because my mum's mum and dad were there. Mm-hmm. And then it just became a bit hard to keep paying rent and everything while I was trying to find a house because it was a four-hour drive each way. So I moved into my parents' house and they had just won all this money in Keno and they had spent it all and they were kind of, it was running out and I was like, I'll move in. I'll have more money if I move in and help use and I can look for a house over there. And I even said when I, you know, if you want to, if I get a house over there, you can come over. And try and have an, like, give my mum a happier life, you know, to be closer to her family because she was always secluded because of him. So that was basically, that's what was happening. I was moving in and out to Port Macquarie and I was only there a week, maybe over, it was within, it was under two weeks. I know that for sure. Um, And then, yeah, this happened. The day before, the Wednesday before, he'd asked my my mother to go get 10 litres of fuel in this jerry can to mow the lawn. And I thought it was very odd, 10 litres, you know, because he had all types of jerry can sizes and he, he would only ever get the smallest one for the size that he needed, the amount that he needed. Yeah, it's a lot. So, he, yeah, that's right. And 10 litres was an odd number. Because you've always given him what he wants, you kind of just don't want to rock the boat. So so mum has just gone and done this without even thinking. Like she's just thinking, you know, he must be going to mow the lawn. Yeah, you don't even ask questions. You just do what Because we've been on eggshells, that's yeah. right. Were they arguing? Was there tension? No, no, this is. No tension. I, so I kind of refer to him as a chihuahua. He's like little man syndrome. Mm-hmm. And when he's angry, he's boisterous. He's a like a chihuahua, if I if I will say that. Yeah. And he was that night. Me and my mum were sitting in the lounge room, and I noticed he had his jeans on still. When my father got ready for bed, he put his trackies on. They were bed trackies, and he put a certain type of jumper on, just his indoor jumper for bed. And he had this jumper on, but he still had his outdoor jeans on. And he was pacing, he paced in and out three times, which wasn't odd because he was always hunting my mother around. Like my father was the kind of person where if he was like literally a chair away from the fridge, he would call my mother from the other side of the building to get him a beer. Like, And there he was pacing and me and mum were playing solitaire and family feud together in the lounge room. 
And then she was like, all right, I better, you know, I've got to go and satisfy this, you know. And um, my mother would just look at me and, you know, roll her eyes because that was her norm. And it says in the court that documents that I went to bed at 10.30, at 10. I didn't go to bed at 10. I went to bed at 11.30. I put my kids to bed. It would have been about 8.30, 9. And then I sat on the lounge and I watched TV out in the lounge room for a bit until 11.30 until I was ready to go into the room. They were in the bedroom and it was quiet. There was nothing going on. There was no fighting. My mother, she would have been trying to sleep because she put up with so much stuff, she had the ability to ignore him. So that's what she would have been doing. And then they're saying in the reports that basically he woke up and went crazy. In the transcripts, there's so many contradictions um, like they say that he was asleep and that he was awake and then he was asleep. He was not sleeping. He was suffering from insomnia. He literally didn't wake up. That is a lie. He literally hadn't been sleeping. He'd been sleeping really bad. Like, honestly, he didn't sleep. But I strongly believe because one day he just stopped drinking and smoking. And I strongly believe that he was just in severe withdrawal. And you know how a man, when a man, like no offense to men out there, but when when a man gets sick of the flu, they get really sick. Yeah, when they've got a head cold, it's the flu, this, yeah, the man flu. This man had been drinking and smoking for 50 years. He would have been feeling very ill and it would have been very unrecognisable to him. And to me, in my opinion, he would have thought he was dying because he was so sick. And then he would have instantly thought, I am not leaving my wife to anyone else. That That's his thought process. That's exactly his thought process. That's even beyond my years, people coming forward. He hit my mother in the head with a mallet. Then he, he has stated that she looked at him and then he put a sheet over her head because he obviously might couldn't handle her looking at him. Why she was obviously dazed. Where where were you when this was all? I was asleep. I was asleep in the bedroom. The court documents and the forensics say that she was dead a period of time, and she slept on the left side of the bed. Um, so he the door was on the right side, and he'd have to walk around um, to her side. And the police diagram they showed me. He took two hammers in the room, but he used the mallet on her and the two hammers were sitting on his pillow on his side of the bed and one was on his dresser. So he's gone and sat there and pondered that he's just slaughtered my mum and he would have realised that I'm in the house. Natalie's in that house. She's my biggest enemy. I'm just, I've just killed her. I might as well kill her too and her kids, you know. The steps that it took to just to get the fuel, because everything was kept in the back shed. So, and there were a lot of steps, like getting the keys off a white shelf that were in a specific position in the kitchen. The house was on, the foundation had sunken basically. Um, so all the doors had scraped. It was a noisy old house. It would wake you up. It was that loud. But this how bad it scraped. And he was. It was quiet. 
he had gotten the fuel and he'd gotten the stuff from the back shed. He'd come back down. He'd gone through the steps of getting the keys. And these keys had like a hundred keys on them. Like they had multiple keys you had to sort through to find the key for the back shed. So all you know for sure from the forensics, the evidence of the forensic experts is that your mum was dead for some time before the fire. So you know that he's thought about it for a while before he's lit the that, fire. That's right. That's right. And the fiery reports, because they asked me, they thought that the fire had started at the bedroom door because most of the fuel was tipped at the bedroom door before he kicked my door in, which means he knew I was in and he was trying to trap me and my kids in that room before he kicked it in. And he didn't expect me to jump out of bed and grab him. So I woke up the moment he kicked my door in. He just had the big Jared, the 10 litre jerry can pouring it everywhere. It was like my body just reacted. I just went into flight mode and I flew out of bed and I grabbed him. And I'd started dragging him down the hallway, pushing him away from my kids. And I was screaming at him. Don't do this, Dad. Don't do this. My babies are in that room. And they have in the court documents that I was screaming out for my mother for help. No, I wasn't. I screamed out for him to stop. I was telling him to stop. I fought him. I was screaming at him. We, I got him to the kitchen. I grabbed him. I slammed his head up against the cupboard above the microwave in the kitchen. And then we were fighting each other like, I remember the can bouncing, the red can, Jerry can bouncing. And he had a red lighter and he lit it. And he, I remember counting it for some reason. I was just I was just counting how many times he flicked it. And every time he flicked it, I'd blow it out like I was legit blowing it out. And the sixth time he lit it, he realized when he lit I was blowing it out. So he literally pushed it into my chest because I was doused in fuel. He pushed it into my chest. It literally went, everything was engulfed. I watched him run out the door that we classed as our front door. It was technically the back door to the building, but the front door was in my mum and dad's room, so it was never used. And he ran out the the main door that we'd use, and I walked back up the hallway, and I was watching my hands. I was walking. I was just like, I don't know, I must have been processing what was happening. And I knew I had to get back to my kids. I was not leaving that house until I had my babies. My hands were burning. The flames were coming up. And to the right on the right wall, it was like kind of like an old serving window just built into the wall. And I heard my eldest son scream through the wall um, because he had slipped over in the fuel. And he screamed through the wall in panic, Mommy, what do I do? And I just said, run, baby, run, like just keep running. And he did, he did his job. He took off and he ran out that door. And I went back to the room and I tried to push the door closed to stop the flames, but it was like the pressure and it was like this big wolf of fire just came up above the door. And then I, I see, I looked over and I seen my son on the bed asleep. Orlando. And I looked down and I was on fire. And I just, I didn't want to burn him. And I just knew if I grabbed him, I didn't want to burn him, you know. And I, it was happening so fast. 
and I just, I, I just, I literally didn't even think of the fucking house. Like I just didn't want to burn my boy. And I jumped out the window as fast as I could. And my son was outside the window. And I said, roll on the ground, baby, roll on the ground. And we rolled on the ground together. And I jumped straight back up and I went to try and get back in the window. I didn't realize how badly burned I was. I didn't realize how high the window was. Or like I literally couldn't get back in the window. And I was standing there and just like the house was melting around me. And my boy was on the bed. And I just watched him through the window and it was, he was asleep and I just knew I couldn't do anything. And then it was just like a wave, like a ball of waves come over him. It just took him. And then I knew that was nothing I could do. I couldn't save him. And I looked to the right and my father was standing behind my son with something in his head. When he ran out of that house, he had nothing in his head. The only thing around that house was bricks and house tiles. And I truly believe if I didn't jump out that window and if this other person wasn't standing from the next door neighbor's yard, I didn't see him there at the time until he grabbed my arm later on. But he even said that he had something in his hand and I honestly believe if we didn't, if I didn't jump out that window, he would have bludgeoned my son to death with that object, without a doubt. And then I looked at him and I screamed at him. I said, what the fuck are you doing? You just killed my mum and my son. When I was walking up the hallway and my son sung out, after he'd sung out and I told him to run, I looked down the hallway to my mum's room and her door was cracked. But the bed was behind the door. But when someone dies that you know would be the first person there, you can feel that they're not there anymore. I I instantly just knew that she was gone. And I screamed it at him. He shit himself and he started running back up to the back shed and got in his car. And he took off and I'm like trying to – I started – there was a hose on the tap and I was just running around in a circle and I was I ran around in three circles like I was in shock and I realized I was in shock and I clicked myself out of it and I realized that I still had a little boy my eldest was sitting right there and I had to choose I had to leave him in that house I had to save the one living I there was nothing I could do. And I just turned to him and I said, I'm sorry, baby, Landy's gone. And I apologised to him right there and then. And I said, now we got to run. And I said, and there were like cat heads all down the driveway, bindies, you name it, they were there. And I told him, I said, don't worry about the bindies, don't worry about the birds, just keep running. And I grabbed his hand and we started running down to the front fence. As I was running, because I had no skin, I started stiffening up and I could hear my father's car behind us, like, flying. It was coming closer and closer. I could feel myself slowing down, stopping. I was like, I just was in shock. And then this man's big hand grabbed me around here. And that was the next door neighbours. His name's Ricky. 
he tried to get my son out of the house as well. He was trying with me. And he, he literally grabbed me and dragged me around the fence before my father literally hit us, was about to hit us on the way out the driveway. And then I just stood there and I just, I said, where the fuck is everybody? And then I heard Ricky saying, they're coming, darling, they're coming. And then the police officers came. They were the first ones there, the coppers. It was a male and a female. And I seen the female and I gave her my son's hand and I just said, do not let anything happen to my son, please. Like, I've been turned because I just watched my boy die. Like, don't let anything happen to him. I just knew I didn't have long. I knew I was badly burnt. And then I just fell on the ground. I was diagnosed. I had given my eldest to her. The ambulance had arrived at this time and they had given him a, a blanket and stuff and they were helping him and the lady, the female copper, was starting to tip bottles of water on my legs. And that's when the pain started setting in. The adrenaline was kind of wearing off. Coming up on Australian True Crime, Natalie's own injuries take her out of the investigation for a period of time, and what she discovers when she's able to rejoin it is shattering. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
How badly burnt were you? Because as you've been telling your story and you've been holding up your hands to demonstrate how you were fighting your dad and all of these things, it's only now that I've noticed your scarring actually yeah. to your hands and things like that. So I'm 80% full sickness burns. Wow. I'm burnt all over. I mean, that's getting close to unsurvivable. I shouldn't be alive. They literally told my family she's, right, she's literally probably most likely going to die. I was burnt everywhere, over my face. I've got half an ear. It's just to different degrees, but I don't, I don't know. I can't even explain it how I survived. Like, like my arms are so skinny. That's how they've always been. And the, the house was melting all over them. Like, I don't even know how I have veins and stuff. I don't, I don't know. I can't explain that. How long were you in hospital for? Ten months. Ten months. Ten months. They wanted me in there longer, but I just I needed to get out and get my son. I didn't care that I was in a wheelchair. At least I could have, you know, my boy, he could do things and we could work together as a team. And But I needed him with me to make sure he was safe. And I'm imagining that when you first went to hospital, were you in a coma? They placed me in a coma for a week. I think they woke me up because I was so bad. They wanted to give me the best pot. They wanted to put me into surgery as soon as possible because I was burnt to the bone. My shins were exposed. They said that I was in coma for a week and they woke me up and I was like gagging and stuff. I still had tubes down my neck and I was opening my eyes slightly for like it would have been a couple of seconds and then I was out cold again. They were testing to see if I would wake up. And I remember seeing my best friends, they were all, they must have been all standing on the side of the bed. I just remember seeing my best friend's glasses. And that's all I remember. And I was just like, she's there. And I just knew she was there. And I just went back to sleep kind of thing. Does that mean you missed the funerals of your mum and your son? Um, No, I made them wait. Yeah. I just said, don't you dare have those funerals without me. Like, that's my – that I wasn't letting them take that. I'm not, like, the greatest – like, I'm a lovely patient, but I'm, like, I don't follow – I'm very body aware. Yeah. Like, they, they wanted me to wear a very tight burn suit. Yes, yeah. Um, I couldn't do it. When you're that burnt – like, I couldn't roll. I was paralysed in my own body. You yeah. have – they cut off all my muscles – everything and I didn't even learn to roll I could only just roll at like the eight month mark but I can imagine you know you've got a child that you want to get back to you've got so much plus you've got a legal situation that you want to take part in they didn't let me take part in it right because I wanted to ask you how the court documents ended up so inaccurate but now I'm thinking oh is this why because you were in a coma when they were putting together all these details? Because they were put together by a person that wasn't even there. One of my siblings put them together and she wasn't even there. So how can they? Everything's wrong in it. They, My son's name in that court document is Oscar. My son's name is Orlando. Oh, my God. I was stuck in hospital. One of my siblings took control. I love her with all my heart. I love her and I want her to know that. And I, I feel like she's just in severe denial unfortunately. They'd done it all when I was in hospital, so I didn't get a chance at all. Even the um, police tried their best 
to show that he did it on purpose and the courts didn't listen. What's the official story then? He he pleaded guilty to what? So t- the judge literally said in, in the court that uh, he knew what he was doing but he didn't know it was wrong. I have the official transcript of the court. There's even doctors in the transcript that have said that he had done it with intent. Two days before, it is in the court documents that my mother had rang my grandmother on the 15th and stated that she wanted to leave because she was done. She's always tried to leave. She's always tried to escape him. He would threaten her whole family. That's why she stayed, because he would have went and slaughtered her mum, her dad. He was that heartless kind of a person. And leading up to when this was happening, my brothers even went and took the gun safe out of the shed. Was that included in the court transcript? No, no, none of this is in there. They literally went and removed the gun safe because they had the fear that he was going to use them. So the official ruling was what? That he had a psychic break from reality? That he had a cognitive disorder with um, severe depression of some sort. Did they draw a parallel or draw a sort of a line from that to the withdrawal? No, no one knows about the withdrawal. This is me, me telling you and, and telling the world is the only people that know he was in withdrawal. They didn't factor that in? No, because I've been around. They they didn't say anything. Because you're in a coma and no one else has told them, no one else knew that or told them. That's right. And they, and these other siblings of mine, they've never been around that kind of stuff to to recognise it and understand it. Because, I mean, people can, we know that people can have strokes. People can drop dead if they suddenly stop drinking, if they've been drinking heavily. That's right. You have to wean yourself off that. Yeah, there's like very serious, can be really serious consequences to going cold turkey for heavy drinkers and smokers. Especially after 50 years or however that he's been doing it, that he was doing it, yeah. And he has a history of violence and that's, that's none right. of that's been even tended to the court. So he didn't go to prison, obviously, because they decided that he wasn't responsible for his actions. That's right. Immediately they decided that, oh, yep, you just need to go to Long Bay Mental Hospital. He's in a high-security psychiatric unit in Long Bay, is he? No, he's not now. So he was, when he first did it, he went to Long Bay and he was in that jail, in that mental house. Mm -hmm. And then in May, I didn't find out. No one contacted me. No one reached out and told me. And I'm the main victim. And there was a tribunal and he has now been moved to a medium facility complex and has been approved day release. I have no doubt in the world that you have asked the question of lawyers, of police, okay, I'm awake now. Can't we go back? Can't I now give a statement? Can't I tell you? Can't I fix all the errors in my statement? You've made a big mistake. I tried to and they didn't listen. They cut me off because I, I don't, the DPP, she was meant to help me. She didn't, she didn't do her job properly to me enough. And when I was in hospital, they went and snapped up legal aid. Only one person can have legal aid. That's right. So once, if he's using legal aid in a, dispute you can't. I can't I've got nothing mm. that's right and I'm not rich hun mm. I've got I don't have my thousand fifty thousand dollars for a lawyer and they they knew that they knew it was once he got legal aid I couldn't fight that 
I don't understand why you should be fighting it personally. Like, I don't understand uh, why. The, the police tried to fight it. The detectives in the trial, they put all the evidence there, the fiery evidence. Like, the real estate would have evidence that the smoke alarms were working. He took the smoke alarms down. They didn't go off, which means they took them down and they were in wor- working order. And they'd wait. This is what I've tried to tell them and they just, they just, it's like they just have deaf ears. Like the DPP didn't do nothing for me. I was in shock after just losing because after I lost my son and my, and my mum, my nan died of a broken heart as well. Yeah. That was, that was her daughter. She instantly all of a sudden got cancer and died because of it. I even said to the court, I had a statement. I wrote a statement. Like a victim impact statement? Yeah, yep, yep. I wrote a victim and I still have it. And I said, I said at the bottom of it, I said, you may have this courtroom fooled, but I know who you fucking truly are. And the judge's face dropped. And then my uncles had two other statements and he wouldn't let them read them. How is that possible? That you're not letting the the victim's statements be even read. Mm. And to even get my name wrong, my son's name wrong, is an absolute disgrace. It is. It's an insult. It is. It's a, and then he was like, I'm sorry in court. Like, it was sickening. And I hate to say it. I really, a lot of people say it to me, and I, and I hate to say it as well, but is this literally what it's taken for years to realise that years have let a mass murderer get away when all the evidence is on the table and it just happens to be my family, you know? Like, as sad as it is, is this going to be the case that change, hopefully makes change? Because I want change. It is dis- the man of victims that have contacted me and told me their stories. Like, no wonder it keeps happening. Yeah. And also, you know, everyone talks a big game all the time about family violence. Every state government, federal government, about how committed everyone is to making the change and being more victim-focused, and then this shit just keeps happening. I don't, I don't understand how they can give these people second chances when my mum and my son don't. They don't get a second chance. They have one life. We all have one life. So how... Can that person have the right to take anyone's life and still get a second chance? There has to be a line drawn when murder is murder. That's it. It's taken as murder regardless of mental health. Because you can't take that back. You can't take back killing somebody. That's the final step. Does he have a minimum term that he's supposed to serve? No. And I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, he's going to hunt for me. I'm my mum. He's. I'm going to be the first person he comes for. I literally lay awake at night with weapons beside my bed and sashed around my house waiting for him. It's disgusting. I shouldn't have to do that. They're just not listening. I shouldn't have to lay awake and be worried because I'm trying to protect my son. Like I literally don't want anything else to happen to my other child. I, I don't know what else to do besides fight and talk and be that, that upfront voice regardless of how scary it is or how horrible it is because if I don't do it, no one's going to do it. Do you still feel afraid of your father? I'm just, no, I'm not scared of him. 
I'm a, I've grown up. I know. I know him. I know how evil he is. I'm not scared of him at all, and he knows I'm his defiant child. Unfortunately, do you think your father was actively asking people in the family not to provide that information, or did they just know not to provide that information to the police? It's known. It's known. As soon as anything happens to do with police, like my father has it drilled in their head that they're bad. Like even when this happened. Basically, most all of my siblings didn't want to talk to the police because they thought they were bad. They just knew not to say anything. That's right. But I, but I, that's not me. I don't think like that. I believe that 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 cop, I, that person, he's a human being just like everyone else. Yep. And he's trying to do his job for for our loved ones, and they just didn't want to. They didn't want to talk to him. I don't talk to any of them anymore. It's like I feel like I'm the, I'm an enemy to them, basically. I can't just ring them and, and, you know, I can't see my nieces, my nephews, and I miss them so much, Um, especially when I've lost my baby. I don't want to lose them. And just because of manipulation that is involved, they just can't see, they just can't see the truth. That's as simple as that. They just, I love them regardless, but I can't, I can't, family or not that family blood doesn't mean anything to me my blood killed my own blood yeah so in their head they're like if even if one sibling supports him they think that's they're still their siblings like that's my sibling regardless but to me it's not it's not like that like you took my babies regardless if we're related growing up and I can see the comparison between that side of the family that isn't my blood, like we can bicker and and have little fights and it's always been like that. We've had disputes, but we always get back together and we're best of friends. Like that's how a family should be. Like we're allowed to have disagreements. But if you have a disagreement in that family, in my my actual family, no, that's it. That's it. You're the worst person in the world. You're wrong. Yeah, it's dysfunctional. Yeah, you guys were raised in a dysfunctional family. It is, it is. Which And it's sad because all the siblings think it was functional when it literally wasn't. Like, I don't know if they're, maybe that's just their defence mechanism to not want to see or remember growing up. I'm pretty used to being the distant one in the family because of the way he's seen that I was just like my mother growing up. Like he would sit, my mother would sit there and hand wash a family of sevens, clothes, towels, everything, hand wash with and roll it out with them old rolling pin things. And he was sitting there on a chair beside her, downgrading her, literally saying to her, and he said to me, he tried to use me as a pawn, and he said, she's shit just like her mother, isn't she, Dort? And I turned around and I said, no, she's not. She's beautiful, just like her mother. And I think that was the, that, that was the first moment that he realised that I was not going to be on his side. And then that from that moment on, I've always been classed as the bad child. So who, who is your support system now? Do you have a strong support system? I'm pretty independent. I've been independent my whole life. I have... My son's nan on the opposite side, really, that's really, if I 
you need to talk. That's really who I. I don't really talk to anybody though. But that's you know? a really that's a really special connection though. Yeah, she's special to me. She really is. And like classy, she's my little sister as well, um, which is her daughter. So there, that's my na- my son's nan and and auntie on the other side, and they're basically my family. That's awesome. And so your son still has family, which is amazing. And it's yeah. such a testament to you. And you've always tried to keep family for both kids that you have done that through all of this. Thank you to our beautiful guest today, Natalie Sands. We contacted the New South Wales Director of Public Prosecutions on Natalie's behalf and asked them to look into her case again, given the many inaccuracies and omissions in the evidence against her father that they were originally asked to consider. We received a reply, which you can read on our Facebook and Instagram pages, but I'll also just read it for you now because it's pretty brief. The reply says, The position taken by the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions on the availability of a special verdict in the prosecution of Richard Sands was reached following close consideration of the available evidence, including the evidence of Natalie Sands, as well as relevant expert evidence concerning Mr Sands' mental health and cognitive function, and in accordance with the ODPP prosecution guidelines. As required by Chapter 5 of the Prosecution Guidelines, Natalie Sands was consulted on this issue and her views were taken into account. Kind regards, Lucille Pearson, ODPP Media. You can follow Natalie Sands' campaign on TikTok where she is Nats underscore Army Official. That's N-A-T-Z underscore Army, A-R-M-Y Official, O-F-F-I-C-I-A-L. Natalie's planning a protest outside the Supreme Court of New South Wales in late November. So if you'll be in Sydney and you'd like to attend, check out her TikTok for details. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 139276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.